Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion on current affairs in China coming to you from Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. This week, critical media foreign and domestic. We'll be looking at these two aspects of media coverage in China. First, we'll talk about a perennial topic that comes up in conversations about the media, the question of bias in foreign media coverage of China, and specifically Western or Anglophone media coverage. Then, lest anyone conclude that it's only the foreign media writing critically about aspects of China, we'll be looking at the state of investigative reporting in China. I'm delighted to have Tanya Brannigan from The Guardian back with us. Tanya, earlier this week, The Guardian published a terrific piece of yours about China's best-known investigative journalist, Wang Keqin. We look forward to hearing more about that story. He's a pretty amazing guy. We're also joined by Jeremy Goldcorn from Danway.org, and we welcome back Bill Bishop, the blogger behind Digicha.com and Sinicism.com, who also tweets like a madman under the handle Newbie, N-I-U-B-I. Nice to be back. Let's jump right in and start talking about foreign media bias, or specifically Western media bias. Uh, this is something that, as I suggested, comes up perennially in conversation. It's not always something that I, I enjoy talking about. It's actually, I find it very difficult. There are a lot of caveats I need to lay out before I can actually jump into a conversation. Personally, uh, I, I guess I know an awful lot of journalists here, and my uh, judgment of their their work is generally very, very positive. I don't think that there's a lot of inherent bias. At the same time, something happens along the way, along the editorial process, that often leads me to tear my hair out in anguish. Is the Western media biased in its coverage? Jeremy? Put me on the spot there. I, sometimes I think it is biased. I personally think the biggest problem is that many stories about China are framed in a certain way by editorial officers at home. Uh, where the editors may be much less informed about China than the correspondent on the ground. So both in terms of topic selection, deciding which stories will be published or will, which stories will get prominent position in a paper or on a website, and in terms of headline writing, you do see, I think, quite clearly uh, biases originating in New York and London editorial offices that do affect the stories written here. I do think there are some correspondents who tend to turn out more biased stories or have more preconceived opinions than others. But I don't think the Western media as a whole is biased against China by any means. Tanya, would you agree with that? Well, I think Jeremy makes a really good point, uh, which is that usually when I see things that do make me tear my hair out, they're not things that are from correspondents who are based here. It's almost always a caption or a headline. And most of the mistakes that people have highlighted in coverage, really glaring mistakes, are, are mistakes that are made by people working outside China. Um, and that's not something that's unique to China either, though. I mean, there are often... Journalism is fast-moving. You're producing what they call the first draft of history. You know, you have a few hours to produce a piece very often. 
on a subject that people may not know much about. You're trying to get things out very quickly, particularly now with websites, the speed with which you're trying to get information out is much faster. Um, and so there is more scope for mistakes. Do those mistakes sometimes reflect an underlying bias or a particular way of viewing the situation? Yes. But as I said, that's not unique to China. Tanya, um, well, you hit on something interesting there that I think not everyone knows, which is that captions are not written by the photographer necessarily, that uh, headline subheads are not written by the actual reporters. And often that's where you find, I mean, because of the exigencies of, of space, you find sort of the most absurd reduction uh, and often, you know, glaring bias in, in headlines and in, in subhead writing. Yeah, absolutely. And even sometimes within pieces, um, it varies from place to place. In general, The Guardian doesn't uh, take a massively interventionist approach to subbing or changing our copy once we've filed it. But there are quite a lot of newspapers where the job of subs is to essentially rewrite uh, what reporters put in. And so, again, that introduces a lot of scope for mistakes and for misunderstandings, I think. When we write about China, irrespective of whether you're an academic or a, a blogger or a journalist, we tend to, to write things often in, in accordance with a, an existing narrative. Or when we, we go off the rails, when we, we sort of go off the, 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 the true sort of center path, we roll very easily into these well-worn ruts. You can think of it in terms of sort of a wagon wheel uh, that, that leaves a deep rut in the road, and the easiest place to often travel is in that well-worn narrative. What are some of these these narratives that we encounter frequently? So, some of the ways that people frame China-related issues uh, that lead to bias. Bill, you want to take a shot? Well, at I think I mean, first of all, every everybody has bias, and you know, not just the media, but I think the media, the U.S. media, has bias about U.S. issues, right? So we're in China, so we're talking about China-specific stuff, but. I think we should all remember that uh, inherently there's bias in everybody's coverage. Absolutely. Um, I think one example of exactly what we were we were just talking about was incident that happened, I think, in January or February where some artists were beaten by uh, a group of thugs in a village outside Beijing. And then they were led, some of them were led on a protest by Ai Weiwei, led on to uh, Changjie. And... Uh, I, I was actually watching the protest on Twitter as Ai Weiwei and a couple of people were tweeting away the whole protest and saw the pictures and then the police broke it up and Ai Weiwei said uh, – he actually said the police were quite reasonable and we left and everything was fine. The New York Times wrote an article, one of their very good correspondents here who understands China. The article, though, when it went online, the headline was Beijing police beat artists, right. which absolutely didn't happen. And the people there knew it didn't happen, but somebody in New York or wherever the editing desk was just decided that it's back to your question about what are some of the stories. One of the, one of the overarching memes is China's a police state. The police beat everybody they want. And so therefore, that's a frame of reference for a lot of people here. And yes, there are lots of security services here, but it's not as much of a totalitarian police state as I think a lot of Western uh, media or Western audiences think it is. So that's one of them, certainly, China as police state. What are some of the others that we frequently encounter in reporting on China? China, late, the latest one is China is going to collapse. The China economy is going to collapse. It's very interesting, and I've actually been writing on my blog in some ways because I like writing against what the current meme is. The current meme in the business and financing reporting in the West is the bear case. The China is the treadmill to hell, or China is going to collapse, or China is the greatest bubble in history. Dubai times a thousand. Exactly. And yes, there are lots of issues in the economy, but what you're seeing in the Western media and watching is you're seeing lots of people who are, who are either on TV or in the print actually don't understand the story, but they're quoting all the same people. 
And so you get this crazy echo chamber that just sort of bounces back and forth and, and reinforces this idea that it's this treadmill to hell, greatest bubble in history. But on the other hand, at the same time right now, you also have another narrative, which is the China has the answer to the world. Uh, right, the, the Beijing consensus. The Beijing That's actually been, I think, shouted down over the last three months by this bear narrative. It's sort of the next wave is now it's going to collapse. Right. Well, the two of them actually talk to different audiences. There's the there's sort of the economic collapse uh, narrative, uh, which is a little more wonkish. And, and, you know, there are a lot of people in the investment community that pay a lot of attention to that. But I'm talking more in the sort of general media. But this is out there, certainly. But it's not uh, – I mean, I, I think there's a lot of life still to this uh, Beijing consensus narrative, this idea that there is this new sort of authoritarian uh, model, developmental model that will in some sense compete with – the United States and and the, uh, the the last man, you know, the liberal democratic model in uh, liberal democratic capitalism in the 21st century. There's a new book actually out called The Beijing Consensus, uh, playing on this term that was coined by uh, Josh Cooper Ramos. Jeremy, what are some of the other narratives that we hear out there? Well, I mean, the police state one has a number of sub-narratives. You know, it's police beat artists, police beat Tibetans, police cut up Falun Gong members and um, use their organs for... Transplants. I, I, I think that one is pretty rich. There, there, there are quite a few narratives. Right. These, but these that's are, not these are what you see much in the mainstream media, actually. Yeah, that's true. Actually, at least the the, the cutting up the Falun Gong people, you don't see that much. Well, um, in the Epic Times, you see it all the time. Right? And actually, I mean, another interesting point that I've realised is that quite often, what people think journalists have written and what they actually have written are quite different things. It's not just about the headline and the captions, but it's actually about the expectations that readers bring to a piece, which is something that you really can't control. And so you have quite strange conversations with readers sometimes when they say, you know, you said this or that. And you say, well, actually, you know, go back, read this paragraph. You know, we we make it clear that this didn't happen. And yet there's this sort of strange assumption in people's minds. They think they know what the story is and they interpret what you actually write in the light of that. Let's let's go back to the year 2008 in, in March, the uprising that happened, the riots in, in Lhasa and that spread to other cities in western China, not just in the Tibetan Autonomous Region. That was sort of the moment of birth of anti-CNN. Uh, that was probably when this, this discussion around media bias really first erupted. I think that a lot of, a lot of the, um, the narratives that, that we're dealing with, a lot of the framing, uh, does surround the relationship between China and its minorities in we sat the, the following year in in June of two thousand nine. With... That, that one, sorry, just go back your framing sure. question. I think that's that's one you should mention is the nasty communists and peaceful, peaceful uh, Tibetans, yeah, Tibetans. Of course, um, that's well, and the underlying idea that actually Tibet's only oppressed because communists want it. But if it t- if China were a democracy, the Chinese people would let it free, let it go free. <laughs> Wrong. Yes, yeah. but that seems to be a very uh, widely held belief in the West. Right. I mean, there there are a million of them. There's the old sweatshop narrative, right? Uh, we, we hear this one all the time. Some are true. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 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 a basis for. for I mean, the, who would argue that China is completely free of any semblance of police state? You know, I mean, maybe it's more rent a cop state, but I think obviously the thing as a, a journalist is there is. Um we have no interest, or I hope we have no interest, no reputable journalist, let's put it that way, has an interest in writing things that aren't true. Uh, so there's there are sort of two issues, which are one, why do you select the stories you do? And when you come to any news, as you say, there's a bias, there's a way you frame things, whether it be domestic or international. Uh, the particular problem, I think, with international news is that your primary audience at home probably don't have the same knowledge and background understanding of the country uh, that they do 
of the place that they themselves live in. The other question is why you get the kind of mistakes we talked about where people sort of have a headline like Beijing police beat artists and it's not true. Again, it's an issue sort of, of framing. When we make mistakes, we fall into the familiar rut. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's what seems well, to happen. But I think Tanya's point is that, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, there's some truth in those ruts. I mean, if China did not have a lot of police and Chengguan who beat people up right. the whole then time, you, then that you wouldn't know, exist. They weren't oppressing would have been, oh, I mean, yeah. right. But you also, it's also exacerbated by real structural issues in Western media, specifically around financial situations and how, I mean, I don't, you probably don't want to speak to The Guardian, but most... American publications are Sucking being wind. gutted. Yes, and yes. so everybody is understaffed and overworked. The New York Times, you talk to people in the U.S. in media business, the New York Times is notorious for having editorial problems for years now. So the fact that they made this one mistake around you know, the artists was maybe not even China-specific, but just a, a more of a symptom of a, of a broader problem within their whole editorial process. Absolutely. I mean, all media organizations are under more pressure. We're producing more, we're producing it with more less. quickly, and we're producing it with less. Yeah. So. Let's go back to 08, uh, as I suggested earlier, uh, to, to March of 08 when a lot of this sort of emerged for the first time. Um, did the C- anti-CNN guys have a point? Um, th- there were a couple of major problems that, that had happened. One of them was the misidentification in some CNN footage, I think it was, of Na- Nepalese police as, as, to, as Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a problem with some photo captions. There was a problem with and cropping. cropping of photos in, in a Reuters uh, photo of, of riders in, in Lhasa where they had left out you know, knife-wielding, violent-looking Tibetans um, and focused instead on someone who... I, I don't remember the specifics of it. This happened again the following year, I remember. Bill, we, we had talked about this. There was a photo of a hatchet-faced PLA or, or, or uh, some uniformed Chinese man standing in the, the, the museum of surf liberation, I believe it was. I can't say that without chuckling a bit. Uh, he was standing behind a, a, in front of a display of weapons where it was quite clearly labeled that these were used by the, uh, the Tibetans in the uprising and it had been mislabeled as uh, weapons that were used in the suppression of the riots. Again, by either a photo editor or by the photographer himself or herself. Right. right. So how do we explain this to our Chinese friends? How do we explain what's happening here and, and exculpate? Well, I mean, you know, specifically in the case of Tibet, I mean, Tibet's not the subject of this of this podcast, but I think from a, you know, as we were just talking, the media is overworked. The Chinese government does not make it easy to access stories. And whereas I think you, you find that the Tibetan you know, information infrastructure is much more Western media friendly. And so they have a, do a much better job of getting out their stories in Western media. And they're much more sympathetic. And so I think you you tell me, but I mean, you, you can probably talk to but anyone I, from... Sorry? That's true. But I think people also treat treat what they say with caution. I mean, you don't find press releases just being sort of reproduced. There's, depends on the paper. Well, it does depend yeah. on the paper. I mean... You know, I remember a journalism student sort of saying to me, is your job to treat, is is your job to regard the Chinese government cynically? And I said, no, my job is to regard everybody I speak to uh, sceptically. Right. Because, right. you know, your job is to try and hold it well, up to analysis. Everybody's spinning something. But as you say, I mean, the, the essential point is that some people make it much easier for you to have access to, right. to some people are much keener to explain their viewpoint. Um, and one problem is that because the Chinese government kept people from going or did their best to keep people out of any of the areas where there was unrest in 2008 and were turning people back, I think people thought, well, why aren't you 
right. letting us in. You know, it it wasn't the Tibetans who were keeping us out of those areas. I had a colleague who spent a week driving around trying to find out what was happening. And I think if the government was more willing to let people in, the coverage would be better. And I think that's something that they're probably aware of, because if you look at what happened in Arumshi last year, year, it was very different. We were able to go in and we were able to investigate. The Arumshi coverage was, was, I mean, partially I think it's the Uyghurs are... Um, f- for lots of reasons, maybe less sympathetic than Tibetans, but also... As they say, they're camels while the Tibetans well, are camels. But they're also not nearly as well organized overseas as the Tibetan groups are. And again, what you were saying where they gave access, I mean, the coverage of what happened in Rumshi seemed to be much more balanced than what, what had happened in Well, I, I think, you know, the, the baby boomers who are currently in charge of editorial policy at pretty much every major British and American news organization have a lot more fondness for Buddhism. I think that's Pretty than, simple. Than Islam? Than Islam, yeah. I mean, I, I think that is a bias in the West. Westerners, educated Westerners, uh, Buddhism is stuff white people like. Educated right. Westerners, they like Buddhism. <laughs> Uh, which, I mean, I think it's pretty ridiculous website, yeah. when you see Tibetans kind of kneeling, prostrating themselves for 2,000 miles from Qinghai to Lhasa. I, I, I have a big problem with that. But it is nonetheless, I mean, that I think is a very clear bias. It's not only in, in China or Tibet, but... Um, Back to Tanya's point, though, about um, the role of journalism. I mean, how there was there apparently seemed to be this sort of disconnect journalism student asking you uh, to, to sort of clarify. I saw an editorial some time ago in the Global Times. There was a columnist named Zhan Jiang who wrote, Western journalism has a deep distrust of governments and tends to view them negatively. This is in stark contrast to the Chinese media, which is largely in harmony with government. In addition... Western journalism, rooted in a distinct sense of justice, favors minorities and the disadvantaged. Do you think that that? I mean, there's there's something not true at all anymore in the U.S. That is just not accurate. Look at the press. Look at look at the look at the major mainstream. The Iraq war is the classic. The Iraq war is the classic. Sure. If if you want to talk about, why aren't they writing about all the all the underprivileged children that live three blocks from the White House? Why aren't they on the front page of the Washington Post every day? The mainstream U.S. media could care less when, when it comes to the China story, though. Right, but but the but the I mean the U.S. media is so captured by the by the government at this point. Access. I mean, we were just talking about Steve Clemens. He had a great piece. It's been talked about in the U.S. This real problem of these White House correspondents who, the Bob Woodward mm-hmm. problem. They will not write critical pieces because they lose access, and they all have six or seven figure book deals to write about the White House. Right. So they can be completely captured by the system. It's the subject of last week's podcast. If you haven't heard it. I, th- I mean, I, th- I think one of the sort of the classic issues that comes up, because very often when I speak to Chinese people, they ask me about the, the bias of the Western media. Sure. And actually, one of the reassuring things is that usually you can have quite a good conversation, even if people are initially quite hostile when you sort of talk to them about pressures. I mean, I think there's a sort of assumption that the Western media are monolithic, which, of course, is one of the great sort of myths about the Chinese government that people That's always right, sort monolithic. of quote. But in the same way, you know, the Western media is, is not a monolith. Uh, yeah, when I talk and about the Western media, I can't help but put air quotes around it because I, mean, I really I bristle at that, that whole you know, idea that there's some sort of monolithic Western media. It's not a joke, though. I mean, if you look at, you know, I know you did a podcast on soft power a few weeks ago, and it ties into this idea that, they, you know, they launched the overseas TV network. And, I mean, there are specific government bodies that are, you know, looking at how to to build an international media presence to put a voice to China in the rest of the world. But if you read some of the stuff that's been in, I think it was in Seeking Truth, some of the theoretical journals, they actually talk about this sort of the domination of the Western media. So not just individuals from a, I mean, a core ideological perspective, the party clearly thinks that it is this monolithic 
uh, hostile force against China. Someone made an interesting point. I don't know how true this is, but they suggested, you know, if you're used to doing kind of Marxist structural analyses yeah. of things, then you see the Western Back to biases, being, back know, to how you frame problems. Exactly, this is their you know, worldview. This is how they look at the world. It's representing capitalist yeah. interests. Right. Um, I mean, but, you know, there, there's this assumption that in quite a sort of crude way that the Western media is somehow there to represent Western governments or Western capitalist interests. There are a lot of unfair things I read about China, but, you know, I'm not going to apologise for the fact that we cover human rights because that's exactly what we should be doing. Absolutely. Um, well, and that's we what your also, audience wants too. Exactly. But, you know, we've also, we've also written a lot on Guantanamo Bay. We've written on extraordinary rendition. And I think the thing that sometimes um, particularly Chinese readers don't notice, maybe because they're mostly reading what we write on China is, you know, if Western governments are sometimes hypocritical in talking about human rights while they act in another way, that doesn't necessarily mean that the media is. Right. But but in the U.S., I mean, Glenn Greenwald, who writes at Salon, has very he's a very good media critic, and he's pointed out repeatedly. He talks a lot about the biases in Western media, specifically about things like Guantanamo Bay. I mean, yeah. if you want, well, if New you York step Times. back as a Martian who showed up in America, which country in the last eight years has killed tens of thousands of innocent civilians? Right. Which country, as a third, as a sort of a different world observer, would you say actually has a worse human rights record? Right. Let's not get into that. No, but honestly, <laughs> but so the Western media won't talk about that. By and large, in the U.S., you won't see that in the U.S. press. Right. So so when you talk about biases, I mean, they're, they're biases across the board. And I think it's it's hard. We're all we all have our own set of interests. So it's it's obviously difficult. And I don't want to get lots of hate mail. So I'm just saying, if you're interested in this topic, you should read Grand Greenwald at Salon. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very Jeremy, dissident perspective. A couple of weeks ago uh, in a podcast that you hosted uh, we, when we uh, talked about the attacks on children, the knife attacks on children in, in Chinese schools. Will Moss had an interesting phrase that he used uh, to, to talk about how when we, 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 we tend to go from a very specific example and to generalize it, uh, he had a, a, a groovy sort of PR catchphrase for it uh, in effect. But uh, uh, that, often that's the case in, in Chinese reporting or in reporting on China. There's a tendency when you're, you're reading about a foreign country and you read one uh, a particular about a particular phenomenon to 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 see that as the norm. Leslie Chang, who is uh, the author of Factory Girls and a former reporter for a number of years at the Wall Street Journal here in Beijing and also in Shanghai, was quoted recently in a, an interview about the question of media bias. She says, "If you write a story about a homeless man who's living in his car or a family that's working three jobs and their kids are still hungry, people will understand that not everyone in America is in these dire conditions." She's talking about America, of course. But these are important issues that we need to focus on and that people can actually change things because of this information. But when you're writing about China and you write these quite sensational or unrepresentative stories about migrants losing their arms in terrible factory accidents or someone's child dying because of pollution in the river, those cases obviously happen. But I think here in America, people read them and think, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. They can't help but think that this is what is happening all the time in China because they don't realize that most people are very poor by our American standards. But their lives are improving and they're often quite optimistic about their future because their context is where they're coming from and not where America is now. Do you know what year she wrote that? Just last year okay. or early this year. But um, I mean, the, the, to her point, uh, I think that we, we do face this problem, right? I mean, it's the same here. In, I, I, I've met innumerable Chinese who uh, take one media report about something that's happened in America and just assume that it's commonplace, right? Uh, we all tend to do this naturally. Not much to say on that. I mean, is it just painfully obvious to you, or 
Well, I, I mean, I think the, the context is a, a, a very big problem of foreign correspondence. That's always the problem, is that people, at your audience, your readers back home, don't have the context of daily life to modify it. What's different about America and, to an extent, England, is that we all know about American England because we all watch American TV shows and films. I mean, this is everywhere. Even in Saudi Arabia, people watch American TV shows. British culture, thanks to several hundred years of colonialism and the English language, is also as well known. It's a known entity. So even if you don't know much about America or England, you probably know enough to assume that when you read a report about a homeless man, that's not representative of the whole country because you've seen Hollywood movies with people in Ferraris and you've seen, you know, TV shows with British people drinking tea and... Uh, Whereas big, China is opaque, right? No, but China, I think was after the, that's why I was asking what she wrote it because I think after you know, the Olympics and now the Shanghai Expo and then the financial crisis, I think the narrative about China has shifted. And I think most, or, or certainly a fair number of people in the West would now think of China as actually the people with the money now. Right. I mean, that Pew study and I think that, that 44% that, of Americans think that, Amer- that China is the leading economic power. Right. And I think that, that has, the, the financial crisis accelerated that shift in perceptions, I think, by several years. Tony, would you, do you think that that's the case? Back in your, your audiences, back home, do you, do you see a shift? I think certainly views are starting to change. I mean, I, I, I think one problem uh, maybe when you talk about biases that, you know, most places have a biased take when they're looking at someone else. But in the context of the West, you're talking about kind of quite a specific power relationship that has existed for a long time. You're talking about the fact that, you know, the UK had a vast empire for a very long time. And I think for a lot of people in the West, there has there has been a sort of a narrative of looking at other countries and saying, when are they going to develop? Essentially of seeing other countries as being backwards and needing to develop and become like us, which I think is a kind of pretty terrible way mm-hmm. of understanding large parts of the world. And so the danger, I guess, is when... Uh, people have partial understandings of things and it fits into that sort of broader narrative. I mean, you know, I think good reporting requires nuance. And so one of the things you... We write news, we write what's new and we write what's interesting and what's striking. And we're not going to suddenly start writing about, you know, 10 million people poddling about their daily lives, drinking tea and being perfect. That's for bloggers, indeed. But, but nor are you, you going to provide a history do. lesson every time, right? I mean, you're no, not going to be I'm able not, to lay out the context of every story. Exactly. We have limited space. So I'm not going to sort of provide a thousand words of background detail. But on the other hand, sometimes you can kind of stick in an extra line or two that says, you know, this is what proportion of this this affects. Or uh, writing about the school stabbings the other week, you know, talking about people talking about rising inequality in China. Well, I think it's quite useful to say, actually, inequality in China is roughly similar to inequality in the States. Yeah, it, it helps and, people and understand, understand it. Well, better, I think actually. I think you made a great point. I think I think there's, and I don't have any data to back it up, but my 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 intuitive sense is that you're seeing a rapid shift in the narrative in the West. Where to your point about well, everyone else is backward because you know we're America, we're Britain. All of a sudden, it's you know people are very stressed out in the U.S. and in England and Europe about finance, the financial crisis, jobs, unemployment. Very quickly, the narrative shifted to oh my God, these guys are going to be richer than us. You know, all of a sudden, you know, there's fear. Uh, we're going to be overtaken. And the other curious thing is that when I think very often when people talk about, you know, the bias of the Western media, it goes back to this idea that China is somehow under attack from the rest of the world, that it's this sort of poor, defenceless country that needs to stand up for itself and that it's David. Well, quite large parts of the world are starting to see it as Goliath. Right. Equally and accurately, in my view.
but there's a sort of there's that's partly why this idea um or that's partly why this kind of hostility to western criticism is there i think which is this sense of being under siege well i, I hope you know we have more correspondents like tanya and also as, as more and more of these you know papers you. go away on newsprint and actually go online I hope that media organizations actually will be more creative in how they use space online. Not maybe you write, but you're able to link to, point to stuff that gives you much more background. And I think most media organizations have yet to fully take, uh, fully exploit or take advantage of those opportunities to help educate their audiences. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Western media aren't the only people in town who are writing critical stories about what's happening in China today. Uh, there's a whole cottage industry, hopefully, uh, that's that's really evolving of true investigative journalists. Tanya had a terrific piece uh, called Wang Keqin and China's Revolution in Investigative Journalism. We're all familiar with Hu Shuli, who was the editor of Caijing and has now uh, moved on to another publication, Caixin. Uh, so let's, let's, talk, let's shift the conversation now and talk about uh, what's going on domestically in China with investigative journalism. Tanya, just for our readers who might not be familiar with who Wang Keqin is, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background on, on this guy and the publication he writes for? Well, he's probably China's best-known investigative journalist. He's been in the trade for a long, long time. Oddly enough, he started out as an official, and uh, he told me he actually got into journalism because it allowed him to earn a bit of money on the side. And at that point, for cobbling together one article, he could go and buy about 15 bowlfuls of uh, beef noodles. So it was <laughs> quite a sort of handy sideline for him to have. Um, but gradually, as he began writing these pieces, people started to come to him with their problems. And he found he was just interested, touched by what they had to say. He felt he had a responsibility to try and share what they were saying with him. And so he began to do what he calls real journalism as opposed to fake journalism um, and to tell those stories. And over time, he's produced a kind of string of fairly amazing scoops at quite a cost to himself. What were some of the, uh, the stories that really put him on the map as an investigative journalist? Uh, well, the stories that put him on the map and also made him known as China's most expensive journalist, which is not a reference to his uh, expenses claim, but to the price that was put on his head, <laughs> is uh, back in 2001, he did a big expose of illegal dealings in local financial markets. And that enraged the gangs in the area in uh, Gansu so much that uh, they put a very, very hefty price tag on his head. It wasn't the first death threat he'd received by any means, but as you can imagine, that was pretty terrifying for both him and his family. And then to compound that, he managed to write another story, uh, which upset the local officials. And so he found he was in trouble with them too. I'm surprised that actually he hasn't been written about too often in the Western press. Uh, have, has there been a lot of reportage about him? No, uh, that, but that I mean, this kind of thing always takes a long time. I, I was just looking yesterday at a, so on our website, Dunway, coverage of Han Han and Ai Weiwei. We've been writing about these guys since 2004, about what, are they blogging and online activities and this kind of thing. It's only in the last year that suddenly they hit the most influential list and this, this, this. These things take time. Chinese people's names are very difficult to remember. I, I, I think uh, if he ca carries on doing it, it's, it's likely that he, he will become better known. And uh, recently, of course, he was in the news for his expose in the the economic the China economic China Times. economic Times, right? For his reports on the uh, vaccination scandal, which we've talked about before, the vaccination scandal in Shanxi Province. Did he give you a lot of background about that whole that whole affair? No, I mean he's uh, said that he didn't really want to talk about that when we contacted him. The initial interview I did was actually before that controversy broke uh, out, and when so we tried to speak to him again, he said he'd not in a position to comment on that one uh, for the simple reason that um, 
as you may know, the story came out linking vaccines to the sickness and uh, deaths of some children. Uh, officials then popped up and said, well, we've looked into it all and it's all fine and there's really not an issue. Uh, and then, surprise, surprise, a few weeks later, we discover that his editor has been removed right. and shunted off to a sort of fairly minor sister company. And what about he himself, though? I mean, he's um, his editor obviously has responsibility for what they run, but... Uh, has has Wang him run into any kind of trouble, sort of censorship? Well, I mean, he said to me, "There are some, you know, there are some stories you can't report." Right, right. Um, and I, I think we all know that. He also, but the other point he makes, and this is one of the reasons that I think he's become a role model to a lot of young journalists. He says, "You have to get it right. You know, there are a lot of things you can do, but you've got to be precise. You've got you've to got make to sure nailed, that all yeah. your facts are nailed down." Give us a sense for how investigative journalism has evolved uh, over the last 10 or 15 years here in China. I think one of the things that's probably really driven it has been the commercialization of the press, which mm -hmm. has created a real sort of incentive to sort of go out there and get scoops and get interesting stories. And also the fact that people are used to more personal freedom. They're used to being able to talk about issues more critically. Um, they've also... A lot of the younger journalists have grown up with role models such as Wang, so there's a, a sort of sense of that this is possible. Tempering that, of course, there's also the other side with uh, the commercial pressures you now see, which is that, you know, do you want to spend a lot of money on a story that maybe won't see the light of day in the end, which is a, a point somebody made to me. <laughs> you know, and that's a problem as well, actually, for Western media now, that, um, you know, fewer Western papers have investigative teams because it, it costs money and time and resources. So if you then think you're going to come up with something which maybe you won't be able to publish, you know, it's quite hard to persuade an editor that that's going to be worth doing. Well, and even if you do publish it, if you piss off the wrong people or company, you tend to lose advertising dollars. Exactly. And yeah. I think it's even more well, it's explicit in the West. It's explicit here, too. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there are sort of real sort of the, you know, the commercial pressures to offset that commercial advantage you can get from a great story. Uh, Wang Keqin certainly is not alone uh, in China as an investigative reporter or as somebody who's willing to take on more sensitive and, and potentially uh, very kind of dangerous stories. Uh, I think probably the most noteworthy journalist out there, who's an editor, is Hu Shuli. Uh, Bill, you're you're really familiar with with Caixin. Uh, I know you're a real avid fan of of her work at Caixin and now at Caixin. Tell us a little bit about her. Uh, well, she's been the subject of long profiles in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and probably several other Western papers. So, I mean, she's probably pretty well known to the audience. She She's very impressive. She uh, built up uh, Taijing Magazine into what was really the preeminent sort of financial. started out really as a business financial publication, but really started covering uh, very aggressively, covering right up to the edge of what was reportable in China, both in terms of not in social as well as political stories, uh, how to some sort of falling out last summer and set up a new company called Caixin, still in Beijing, took most of her same team, uh, and so has a new magazine that's, uh, I think it's called New Century Weekly, is actually the official title. That's right. Um, and they, you know, they write very important stuff. You know, I like it because in many ways it's like financial porn. I mean, if you want to know how corruption works in China, read Caixin, Caixin or read Caixin because they will give you great stories about sort of what really happens. This latest issue of Caixin has, of the New Century Weekly has a very interesting story about a uh, the details behind Huang, the, the Gomez, uh, Huang Wangyu's case. Huang, yeah, also who we've, we've talked about on, on, the, uh, on the podcast. Yeah. Jeremy, who are some of your heroes in investigative journalism in China? I don't know if I have any heroes. I mean, uh, I think um, 
Lee Datong is one other person that should be mentioned. He was uh, the editor of, of Bing Dian. Of, of Bing Dian. Freezing and Point. has been, you know, writing um, hard-hitting pieces for, for many years and continues to do it, even though he doesn't have much of a presence anymore in the, in the mainline media. I think if you cover the three of those, those are probably the best uh, best known of China's journalists. But I mean, sometimes one also has to look at the publications, Nanfang Zhou Mo and the Southern Group generally, uh, Southern Weekly, yeah, have very much. for years. And, you know, in, some people define the sort of La, uh, sort of watershed moment in uh, the Gang case, the graphic designer who was beaten to death by police in And Guangzhou really sort of single-handedly brought down the Hukou system as it used to be. Yeah, what one could one could say that. And that one could attribute to a group of editors, I think, at the, the Southern Weekly. And the Southern Weekly is, of course, a very interesting beast because it's owned by the government, <clears throat> the, the, the uh, provincial government. But it has managed, despite many, many purges, to continue publishing stuff that other newspapers just won't touch. Bill, there's a real geographic difference, right? I mean, when, when you, as you move south, well, Shanghai, of course, is, is notoriously timid in its, in its reporting. When you get down to Guangzhou with the, the whole southern group, I mean, there is some really amazing stuff that's coming out of there. I mean, it's, it's really quite hard hitting. What explains this? Is it just simply that the, the heaven is high and the emperor is far away when you're that far south? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that's part of it. But if you look at Hu Shuli, she's in Beijing, right? Yes. So they, you know, I think it depends on who, who really is your uh, backer in the government, and for I guess Guangdong province must, you know, whoever's working or whoever's really behind the Southern Weekend must be fairly willing to support them in any problems they may have with the sort of central ministry propaganda. And also, I mean, uh, Hu Shuli has been a mistress of this, I guess, which is judging the time to do a story and judging how you write and frame a story um, because it's a lot of the lines are not sort of red lines but grey lines and if you can find the right way to approach it and if you have the right backers and if somebody has perhaps said something which makes you think you can flag an issue up then you probably have a certain space to do that. But I do say probably because obviously people do sometimes misjudge it. And she, they made mistakes at Taijing. They had more than one issue. It was actually pulled after it was on the newsstand where they misjudged what was reportable. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult line to assess often, even if, if you're an old news veteran like Hu Shuli is. But uh, there are uh, problems that you talk about in the world of journalism in China. Toward the end of your story, uh, you talk about uh, this business of fake journalists, of the bribery and blackmail and uh, the, that goes on quite routinely here. We had this gigantic scandal around coal mines, around fake reporters showing up at coal mines. I think that was the middle of last year. What ails Chinese journalism? Jeremy, do you want to take a... Oh, so many things ail Chinese journalism. I think we could speak for another five hours about it. But uh, there, on the one hand... Commercial pressures, as Tanya pointed out, have contributed to liberalizing in some ways the Chinese press because people want more interesting stories. But on the other hand, there's pressure from advertisers. So you have, you know, journalists have to be careful. They can't piss off their publication's main advertisers. Uh, you have the Hongbao culture where it is standard in Chinese journalism to get a, a so called transport fee of usually about 200 kwai, sometimes 300. 300 is the rate. Um, from 
uh, press uh, conferences where companies or, you know, sometimes even apparently government organizations will encourage people to come to a press conference and they get this. And they um, sort of give you the story ahead of time, print it out just for you to transcribe. Basically copy and paste, yeah. yeah you, know, you know, there is obviously a very strict censorship regime. There's a very big element of self-censorship, which sort of goes from the reporter themselves, what they decide to write, right up to the editor-in-chief, what they decide to publish. There's the fact that this is an industry that everybody knows has grown out of the propaganda industry. So they're not really role models that uh, have been around very long because 30 years ago there was no such thing as journalism in China. And, and yet clearly some of the publications that we've been talking about have been able to uh, really inculcate a, a good sort of ethics, uh, an atmosphere of, of better ethics in journalism. How are they doing that? Is it just a matter of paying them more or selection of journalists? No, it's people. I mean, right. the, the people who've done it. I, you know, I mean, I think Hu Shuli is a great example yeah. of somebody who's been willing to, you know, make difficult decisions in order to sustain a certain culture. Although but, I mean, she also did talk about the importance of wages. They pay better. They pay better. And, they, and they're banned from taking any sort of gifts or money. Yeah, 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 so they they just fired. Fired. It doesn't yeah. mean they don't, but if they do, they get fired. Uh, tell me, what, what is it like economically for a Chinese journalist? What, what kind of money, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it and don't have friends who are writers, uh, how bad is it? What is your average sort of cub journalist just out of J school uh, you know, who, who's writing for uh, you know, your, your Beijing Wanbao or what have you? What are well, they if, if you're a famous writer for a newspaper, kind of, uh, you can get qian zi, qian yuan, a thousand kuai for a thousand characters. So a thousand characters can translate into, say, fifteen hundred, two hundred word English story. Mm-hmm. You would get as a freelancer, as a famous freelancer, you'd get fourteen hundred, or I'm sorry, one hundred and forty dollars. Yeah, for that, and it gets worse. You know, if you're not famous, you you, you might just you might not even make a hundred kwai for a story. Uh, the wages are a couple of thousand a month, but I mean they can go up once you you reach the senior editorial ranks. But as a pounding the pavement journalist, you're looking at a few thousand RMB as far as I know. I think one of the other things that has made a difference has been, as you say, individuals. And again, I mean, Wong's been kind of training up these younger journalists, and that's something his sort of newspapers tasked them, him with. I have to say, very, very high standards, which a lot of Western papers would do well to emulate. I mean, he insists, I think, that for every story, you have to have six independent witnesses. That's not experts and so forth, but people who have direct involvement. They have to be fully identified to him, although obviously not necessarily in the pieces he publishes. He demands phone numbers so he can ring them up and check, and he insists on having at least 10 substantive quotes from each interviewee. Hmm. So, I mean, there's this whole kind of structure that he's trying to introduce, a whole sort of set of standards. Has he, to your knowledge, gotten any formal training in journalism in the West, or is he a homegrown guy? That's a very good question. As far as I know, he is homegrown. It's possible, just judging from Wong, that you can develop that on your own here domestically. Well, and you know, I think um, Jeremy sort of talks about the structural issues, which are obviously huge and very important. But equally, as Bill was saying earlier, you know, there are some pretty terrible journalists in the West, um, and within any industry, you're going to get a real. Yeah. range of ability, and I'm, that's exactly what you see in China. I'm surprised the White House hasn't considered the Hongbao transportation fee model for uh, press pool. <laughs> I mean, they do it. They actually do it by access and giving you access to write a book if you write nice stuff, right? You piss off the White House, you lose your access. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you lose your access, you lose your ability to make money. So they're not actually giving you cash up front, but is it really that different? 
Yeah, and you know, you in the West, you will story. get these kind of jolly trips where people say, "Someone offered me a trip, sort of going yachting." in Hong Kong the other week and I said no thank you because I didn't really think there was a story in it but you know is that really any different from the Hong Bao I don't think so no it's but not but it's not but it, it's, but, it's cleaner it's more refined but it's not theoretically but I would say you know it's not part of the industry in a way it is in China it's, it's not standard and it's not right. it's just sort of accepted it's practice. just endemic yeah well it, it, yeah Tani in your piece you mentioned a rule that was put in, into place in 2004 uh, that regulates the ability of journalists to write about areas that aren't under their sort of explicit domain. Uh, tell me how that's Im- impacted investigative journalism here. Well, a lot of people really feel that that sort of ended the golden era for investigative journalism because it made it much harder uh, to go out and do these sorts of stories. And obviously many journalists basically ignore the rule and do go and do great reporting anyway. But it means that officials can impede them and do impede them. And it also means that very often they face repercussions afterwards. So the rule really is invoked from time to time? It's there. It's well, great. let's put it this way. David Bandersky, who's a scholar at the China Media Project, said to me, well, I've never actually seen a copy of it, but many, many people have told me that it exists. <laughs> Bill, uh, the other day, Roland Song from Dona Sibe. ZonaEuropa.com. Yeah, ZonaEuropa.com. We'll link, we'll link to it on the podcast introduction. Sure. He, he had an, an interesting piece that you were uh, you tweeted out. Uh, tell us about that about this. Well, Xinhua. well, Xinhua, the you know the official state news service, actually has a has a, a two tiered system for news. Right, there's the news that's released publicly, but then there's a much richer and much more extensive uh, set of coverage that goes to China's leaders. And I think actually the Xinhua reporters do good reporting and good coverage of lots of stuff that never sees the light of day. And so Roland Song obtained a copy of a presentation that a, a Xinhua editor had given at a journalism school where he talked about stories like the the uh, problems in Rumchi last July and like the uh, return to Earth of the first astronaut, Yang Liwei, mm-hmm. and where what actually happened was and what was told to the uh, to the sort of the leaders in China was very different than actually what was reported publicly. And so when we talk about investigative journalism, you know, a lot of us, most of us actually have no idea what is really, you know, I think, I think, the, the people in power in China may actually know a lot more about some of these problems and what happens than we give them credit for. Because I think there's this sh- this much richer, deeper Xinhua system that reports a lot of stuff. Mm. According to that story, Yang Liwei actually on his return, on his uh, descent, he was under some enormous G-forces and he was actually bleeding out orifices uh, and they what they cleaned him up before actually filming him again. He was quite shaken, quite sure he was going to die. Uh, that was That came as a real shock to me. Very, very interesting. Hey, listen, uh, I'd love to go on with this fascinating topic, but uh, just as a reminder for all the listeners, on our podcast page, we'll have links to all the stories mentioned, including Tanya's very excellent story, Wang Kachin and China's revolution in investigative journalism in The Guardian. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for joining me. Thanks very much, Jeremy, Bill, and of course, Tanya. And we'll see you all again very soon on the Seneca Podcast. I'm Kaiser Guo in Beijing. Goodbye. Goodbye.